Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport. Today, we are super, super uh, excited um, to talk to Scott Reed. Scott is a sports investigative reporter for the Orange County Register, who's covered myriad different stories related to abuse and sexual assault um, in USA Gymnastics and USA Swimming. So we're really excited um, to get into um, to get right into the show today. And as always, if you are uh, enjoying the show, please feel free to share, um, like, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play. Um, and if you're if you have any thoughts or questions, uh, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at uh, End of Sport Pod, uh, or send us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. So before we begin, um, I know that Derek already mentioned the topic um, of this episode, but we wanted to be very clear that the topic of the episode is about sexual harassment and abuse in sport, which is something that is very sensitive and disturbing, but obviously much needed to talk about. Um, So if you decide to continue listening to the episode, just sort of make an informed decision about whether this is sort of right for you, especially if you've witnessed or sort of experienced sexual harassment or assault. This can be particularly triggering, um, but we do encourage people to feel comfortable to listen to it because what he has to say is super important mind-blowing at times, and just something that we all need to know more about. Scott Reed is an investigative reporter of American, Olympic, and international sports for the Orange County Register. Reed is perhaps one of the most incisive and prolific reporters of sexual harassment and abuse in sports. His work has been the catalyst for numerous necessary interventions into governing bodies of sports for issues of sexual harassment and abuse. Due to Reed's reporting and the the courage of female victims um, to speak out, of course, throughout the 2000s, uh, 2010s, USA Gymnastics and USA Swimming adopted new sexual abuse-related policies and banned top-level coaches, respectively. It's important to note that the two bodies, USA Gymnastics and USA Swimming, govern the most successful gymnastics and swimmers in the world. We'd also be remiss not to mention that Reed has a BA in history, which I know Johanna is a massive fan of because she's also a historian um, from the (laughs) University of, of Washington. Scott, we are so, so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. In terms of, we kind of like like to ask all of our um, all of our guests um, how they're doing in in terms of life during quarantine and with the sort of general societal upheaval. How are you doing, Scott? I'm I'm doing really well. Uh, thanks. Um, my my day hasn't changed much. I, I always worked remotely. Almost never went in the office. So <clears throat> so that part hasn't changed. Other than my youngest was a high school senior this this past year so every once in a while in the morning and in, in his in next door to me is his bedroom I hear him swearing at the zoom for not working but other than that my <laughs> was pretty much the same. man so what was that like um like being a parent of a graduating senior with no you know like graduation all that normal stuff it was really hard um he's a he's a runner and so he lost his senior season um which was really difficult um, yeah, and, and and for all his friends who, um, so he 
so that was that was really hard and, and he was counting on a big season so that was really hard um we just went my wife's on the school board here we just went to graduation last week it was kind of a a drive-through graduation you know your burger and fries and your diploma um <laughs> so so that that you know that was kind of hard too um but i think i think just it was it was it was hard on me just seeing him go through the disappointment of of having this stripped away from him because for several weeks the, the people thought well we'll have meets in april and then oh we'll have meets in in, in may or we'll have meets in june and it's in it and, and just, it just never happened Mm. Yeah. Did he? Um, I'm just curious. Did he like try to stay in shape? I'm just kind of curious he, how. He did. So he did. So he had a crew of about th- three kids who were very careful quarantining with their families, and so they would run just them, and um, and, and try to you know obey all the local restrictions and in uh, hopes of that there would be meets. I mean, originally we thought there would probably be some meets. Um, at the end of April, and then you know that got rolled to May, and then into June, and we were hoping that some meets in Oregon would take place, and you know it just it just it, it didn't happen. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So, if you do a brief internet search, numerous results pop up about your various investigations into sexual harassment and abuse in sport. We'd love to hear a bit about how you first got into reporting on the subject and kind of some background into what does this work entail? And so what do you do when you begin investigating um, a topic? Okay, so I'm an, I'm an investigative reporter in sports at the Orange County Register and I've been so since 98. I was an Olympic writer uh, starting in 96. I covered college football for a while. Um, and so the, the gymnastics end of it is, I covered the University of Georgia for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in the 90s, and they have a high level, one of the top programs in the country, at least they did at the time. And so you would see kids coming into that program, and these women, young women, were a lot of them were broken by this, this elite system in the United States. And the coach at the University of Georgia, Suzanne Yachlin, she was really good at putting kids back together, basically. So I knew a little bit about the, the mental wear and tear and, and the physical as well. And then in 2001, there was a, a U.S. national team member gymnast by the name of Tabitha Yim, who was from Orange County. And she was really unique. Um, she was also trying to be a high-level skater, ice skater. And she also had a, a really compelling backstory, family story. Her dad had died a year or two earlier, and they'd been very close. So before the 2001 Worlds, I spent a day with her. And... <clears throat> Sorry, I really got to see this 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 system that bullies kids and their parents up close. Um, mm. and she she was at Charter Oaks, which is the Rybecki Gym, and um, it was just a really. I, I got to be pretty close to her mother, and just 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 the constant intimidation and bullying and pressure on these kids to do this and that, and and um, and I was kind of follow up on it. And then again, this was in 2001, fall of 2001. And then 2002, 2003, we were sidetracked on a series of other big investigations. And so in the summer of 2003, Anaheim hosted the World World Championships in Gymnastics. And so I spent a, a good part of that summer going around from different gyms around the country and, and seeing the sport at the highest level up close not only the, the the wear and tear of these women but also the the just the mental stuff they had to deal with 
and it, 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 it was clearly an abusive situation. So in 2004, we did a big investigation and it was called out, out, of, out of Balance, a look inside USC Gymnastics culture of abuse. And I'm, I believe we were one of the first, if not the first news outlets to, to characterize this as a, as a uh, culture of abuse. And what we wow. did is I interviewed about half of the, there's about 300 women who were on the national team, either at the junior or senior level between 82 and 2004. And I interviewed about half of them. And we just did a, a, a series of questions. So we asked everybody the same questions. And then obviously anecdotally, it would, it would go off different directions. But there was a set series of questions we asked everyone. And basically what we found was that you were more likely to re require surgery if you were a member of the national team than if you were a player in the NFL. 93% uh, of the women, 93% wow. of the women had either suffered a broken bone or surgery during their uh, career. Nine out of 10. Uh, Train on injuries that either required surgery or or, or resulted in broken bones. Um, there was the whole kind of Crowley culture at the 2001 World Championships. The kids had so little access to food that the parents took to this is rather ingenious. Took to buying teddy bears, hollowing out some of the stuffing of the, hell, the teddy bear, cramming food you know into the the teddy bear, and then, and then giving the teddy bears to the, to the kids because this. You know, fit this whole TV image of you know these little girls and, and teddy bears and you know the whole American sweetheart thing. So mm -hmm. um, some of the other stuff we found. Uh, there was a Olympian by the name of Kelly Garrison. Uh, she had uh, they just the doctors discovered she had 23 stress stress fractures in her spine. By the time she was 37, she needed knee and hip replacements. Um, we talked to a guy who was the, uh, a surgeon at the Harvard uh, Medical School, and he he described it as U.S. gymnastics as the survival of the fittest or the luckiest. Now, all this was going on at the same time that USA Gymnastics, under pressure from the Crowleys, people like Mary Lee Tracy, these high, these top, very top coaches, uh, were pressuring successfully in the end uh, USA Gymnastics to discontinue an athlete wellness program. And so you had this exploding rate of injuries. You have athletes who are on the national team saying, we need more education about wellness, about eating, about uh, injuries. And Martha and Bella Caroli, some of these other coaches, really pressured um, USA Gymnastics to stop the program, and they, and they did. Um, so that's how we got into, to, um, um, I guess, the abuse, of, abuse of, of, of gymnastics. And then in 2011, we did a big investigation on Don Peters, who was the coach of the uh, 1984 women's Olympic team. He he had um, had uh, sex with a series of uh, three teenage gymnasts that he'd coached. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we did a big story on a guy by the name of Doug Boger, who was basically a serial abuser, who eventually was banned by USA Gymnastics, but he continued to, to coach at a gym just a few minutes from the USOC headquarters, Colorado Springs, and he continued to coach um, national team members in acrobatic gymnastics and trampoline gymnastics. And he, while he was under investigation for some just some just really vile sexual and physical abuse of, of dozens of girls, um, he was named the national team coach, and he was named USA Gymnastics Coach of the Year. Um, 
so, so that's Holy how we cow. really got into it. And then <clears throat> through the rest of the decade, we did a lot of stuff on swimming. Um, and then, you know, then the gymnastics stuff was always kind of, there's always seemed to be some kind of gymnastics story just around the corner. Wow. It, it, it's like really saddening and, and so problematic. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts because you've done a, like a tremendous amount of um, reporting on the, the Larry Nasser um, case, which is obviously extremely well known um, and it's received a lot of uh, headlines and there's been numerous articles written on this. But I'd, I'd like to just get your um, sort of um, take on on that case and the extent to which that case is unique or perhaps, and this is maybe what I'm hearing a little bit here, perhaps it's not that unique. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious to get your opinion. Yeah, Derek, so it's, it's both. It's, it's unique in terms of the volume, of the, you know, this, this incredible number of victims. You know, we're looking at over 500 victims, survivors. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a product of, of a, you know, where, where he was, both in terms of the, the national team and in Michigan State. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's the kind of the, the backstory behind it, what, how it was able to come about is not unique at all, unfortunately, within the, I guess, what you call the American Olympic sports movement. It's, it, it, it kind of mirrors a lot of other cases where people missed signs or ignored signs or covered up, you know, clear, clear abuse. I mean, we see that we've seen this in other gymnastic cases. You've seen it in swimming. Um, you've seen seen it in taekwondo. So, it, in terms of just how many survivors there are, that is definitely unique. But but the kind of the backstory um, is unfortunately not all that unique. Hearing you trace this history, I mean, going back to what 2001 is sort of when you first started getting into right. it, and 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 obviously, if this is sort of the culture of the sport then it then it goes back decades right it's not like it just starts in 2001 you know it's something that's been there for a while the fact that there was a wellness program that was created and the the carolis asked for it to be eliminated right so like there's right. a, a huge pattern here so sort of like what do we what do we make of this pattern i guess is sort of my question well there's, i guess the common theme is i mean this goes way back to the 70s where Mike Jackie, who who was later the head, of, who was at the time the head of U.S. gymnastics, tried to warn people in the USOC about sexual abuse in their sports, and he was shot down. You know, there's a, the famous Bob Call Rossi letter in '99 to the USOC about sexual abuse, and try, trying to, to alert people. And, and Scott Blackman was one of the people that received the letter, and they they, they blew him off. I think the common thing to this at all is is medals and money over athlete safety. It, it, these athletes are commodities; mm -hmm. they're cattle, um, and it's all about branding. You know, you protect the brand and not the, and not the, not the child. I mean, the most most of these in a lot of these cases, you're talking about children. You know, people who are yeah. under 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 eighteen, and so these kids have been sacrificed for, for you know keeping. The brand alive, or you know, keeping NBC happy, and and you know, not disrupting the fairy tale. Uh, you don't you you don't want people to see the dark secrets behind you know Michael Phelps. Not that Michael Phelps was abused, but this this, this whole story, you know, this great success story, of Michael Phelps. They don't want to see the dark side of the sport that he's involved in, or you know, 
we want to see these 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 women doing stuff that defies gravity and your imagination every four years in gymnastics, but you don't want to see how they got there. So you you've done a, a ton of work um, exposing. Uh, USA Swimming's long history of shielding and abetting sexual abuse, um, in addition to gymnastics. In particular, in February 2018, you wrote a thorough and, and very damaging or damning piece um, uh, titled, Hundreds of USA Swimmers Were Sexually Abused for Decades and the People in Charge Knew and Ignored It, which we'll certainly link in the show notes. In that piece, you detail how sexual abuse of young athletes by their coaches has been pervasive for decades in USA swimming. So um, I asked you about the, the Nasser case and kind of pivoting to USA swimming kind of because I'm, I'm trying to, to see um, or, or do like a sort of compare and contrast between that case and what's gone on um, in USA swimming over the last um, uh, couple of decades. Are those, is, is is there a lot of similarity in those cases or like um can we read into this as a much bigger phenomena than simply um one or two bad apples or um any other problematic rhetoric that that um, people come up with i i i believe that the, the problem swimming is 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 more pervasive than it is in gymnastics or at least pervasive i i so for a long time, the executive director of USA, the USA Swimming was a guy, and then Chuck Weigles, who died a couple of years ago, and he repeatedly ignored, uh, stonewalled cases after case after case after case. Um, California, there's a new there's a new law that went into effect in January first, which opens the window for civil lawsuits by sexual sex abuse survivors. And so women who, who haven't previously had the chance, or men have had the previ previously haven't had the chance to file a civil suit uh, can now do so. And uh, USA Swimming was recently named within like the last month in a case involving three really high profile coaches, Mitch Ivey, who was a Olympic medalist and later Olympic coach, uh, Andy King, who was a, a serial predator for decades, and then um, Uchiyama, who was a well-known case where he was the U.S. national team director, was fired after he admitted having sex with a teenager in California. Um, he turned around, got a job at a country club not too far from the USOC headquarters, based largely on the recommendations of USOC, sorry, USA Swimming employees, and his wife worked for Chuck Weigless. And then when this was exposed four years later, um, they they claimed they didn't know anything about it. When when we we re, it's in, in the, the story you referred to in 2018, there's there's a paper trail where, you know, uh, a guy by the name Pat Hogan, who who was one of the bosses of, of Everett Uchiyama's wife, gave his glowing recommendation to this. It's called the Country Club of Colorado for Everett Uchiyama to get a job there. Um, Chuck Wagless is is is. Um, He's dead now, but he, 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 there are a lot of survivors on his head. Um, it just, um, um, it, it, I, 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 as, as, as bad as USA gym, uh, Gymnastics has handled this, uh, Weigel's, I think is, is as bad or worse. It's almost wow. hard to imagine. Um, 
to to imagine worse like that's that's one of the things that's running through my mind when you're when you're saying that this is worse it's almost like impossible to think that things can be um worse than that original than that nasser scandal so this is like frightening and also like troubling in in the in the story in 2018 we did there's a line in there where we got a hold of a deposition where weigles is asked um something along the lines well is athlete safety your top priority and he said no it's not and he you know he went into this whole thing about growing the sport and 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 i mean it might be the one time he was actually honest he i mean chuck weigles was is was is it it's hard to it's hard to uh illustrate just how responsible how just how much abuse he he's responsible for in terms of just neglect and shirking your duty and and uh there's you know one of the cases in this this lawsuit is, is andy king out in california where he, he bounced around the west coast abusing kids everywhere and um and then he was on chuck weigles's radar a couple times and and, and weigles shut down the investigations and finally he was arrested for um sexually abusing a, uh, some teenagers in san jose but this had gone on for decades and and, and mark schubert who was the longtime national team director and, and Olympic coach, he he went to Weigel several times about um, a abusive coach from Washington D.C. by the name of Rick Curl, and Weigel would constantly blow him off, wouldn't deal with him at all. And this was a guy who was a known predator, who was on the pool deck at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And Chuck wouldn't do anything about it. He didn't do anything about it when 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 Curl would get the credentials to USA Swimming events and. For years after Chuck Wagless was was knew that that uh, Curl was a predator, he, he, he USA Swimming continued to to provide grants to the swim club that Rick Curl owned. I am just wow. I, I just have to say so. Um, I um, Derek and Nathan um, did an interview with me a couple weeks ago that's going to be airing well this week in like real time um, where I detailed two sexual harassment incidents that I experienced. Um, Fortunately, like no abuse, nothing terrible, terrible. But my point was that like, this is so pervasive and it's pervasive at like every level. It's not just club. It's not just the Olympic level. It's at like every level. Um, And so to hear, and you know, even though I have these experiences, I still have a lot of fond memories of swimming. And so for me, like the USA, the, the NASA and Larry, uh, USA Gymnastics, that stands out to me as the most problematic one. So sort of to hear you as like an expert say that the USA swimming is, is really, you know, it's, it's, it's something to hear. Um, and I guess I wanted to, so is, is the reason why USA swimming is um, the worst one? Is it because of the longevity and because like the main, like, leaders and power were like stalling those investigations. Right. And it was accepted. It was, it was, I mean, gymnastics has had a kind of a, a, a good old boys click. It's, although it's, 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 it's a, it's a, there's a lot of women in that, but it's a kind of this Caroli orbit. Swimming is, was, has been run for decades. I mean, back to the sixties, at least by a good old boys club where uh, say a club coach having a girlfriend who was 16 or 17 was acceptable. It was it was common, commonplace and, and common knowledge, and it was just accepted. And the, the real problem with that, to me, is so you would have say 
you're a 11 year old girl at a, a swim club in, in Southern California, and you see that the star of your team who's 16 or 17 is quote dating the coach that normalizes that sexual relationship, that illegal relationship. And so absolutely, you so you, these kids were basically groomed without being groomed. I mean, like, so they're being groomed without the, the stereotypical, the textbook kind of grooming where you're focusing on a kid who's vulnerable. What, what, what these, what USA Swimming was doing was normalizing illegal behavior. And, and so when that 11 year old got to be 16 year old and her coach said, Hey, you know, let's go to the drive-in or whatever. Then it was, it was, that, Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. That's cause that's what, you know, this woman who, was an Olympic gold medalist when she was 17. That's what she did. So that's what, you know, that's what I'll do. And, and, and that's, I think that was the real, one of the, the big issues to me with swimming is that it, it was, it, they normalized sexual. That's so powerful. Um, wow. I'm just, my mind is going in like a thousand directions. One thing that I did want to mention. Um, so I went to graduate school at the university of Florida where Mitch Ivy very famously coached right. for a few years. Right. Um, and his, um, his, some of his kids live there. Um, and I say some of his kids because I, I think he, um, had relationships with many swimmers that resulted in kids. And I, right. I coached one of his kids. Right. Um, and I was new to the area and didn't really know, like I'd never heard of him before. I didn't really know much about him. And I eventually heard like through the grapevine, Oh, like this is the backstory. And he wasn't at that point, he wasn't officially supposed to be on the pool deck, but the pool AUF has like a balcony at the top where parents would sit and like watch during practice. And he came only like a few times. I mean, it wasn't often at all. I saw him maybe four or five times. Um, but it was, it was bizarre to think that like, there are a pair of twins on the team and his dad has this story and like, you know, how do we sort of, how do we coach these kids? It was just something that was very bizarre. Um, and then the coach that the head coach of my team later that year got caught in a sexting, um, not related to swimming or the swim team, but like right. he was driving down to Orlando to like meet somebody and it was caught in like a, a sexting, which is, you know, again, not related, not necessarily related to swimming, but was just like overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, this is so toxic. Um, I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. Yeah. yeah I mean, I can't remember if it was 2012 or the 2016 Olympic trials. Ivy was actually on the pool deck with a VIP uh, credential. This is after he'd been, if it was 2016, it was definitely after he'd been banned for life. But, but you know, it, like I said, the Mitch Ivy case, he was well-known going back to when you were in Florida, back in the nineties, early nineties, it was, you know, it was well-known that he was, he was a serial abuser. You know, he'd had, uh, he, he married one teenager and was engaged to another teenager and had, had, his first marriage uh, was broke up because because his teenage wife had caught him with a another teenager and, and uh, yeah I mean it was like it wasn't like some secret that you know came out of nowhere in the nineties it was you know it was well known for for decades. This all paints a very structural picture to me a picture that that um, these things are patterned into. Um, into many different systems, many institutions, and um, many individuals suffer harms. And a real goal of this podcast in particular is to analyze all of the ways that 
that the structure of sort of modern capitalist sport exploits and harms people, um, especially athletes. We're, we're really concerned about athletes uh, on this and athletic labors uh, on this podcast. Um, the reporting that you and others have done suggests that sexual abuse um, uh, and how sport organizations have ignored um, and actively sort of covered it up is absolutely scarily pervasive. Um, to pick one example, USA Swimming's president stated in a 2010 deposition that protecting swimmers against things like sexual harassment, uh, and I'm quoting here, uh, has never been our number one priority. Right. Um, and this is absolutely um, disgusting from, from my perspective. Um, and comparatively, just this month in June 2020, so a decade later, the NCAA um, stated in response to um, a class action suit that they have no legal obligation to protect student athletes against sexual abuse and harassment um, in response to, to, the, to this lawsuit from three um, female Texas track athletes. This seems like damning evidence that sports bodies have cultivated this epidemic of sexual abuse, um, as the three uh, Texas athletes asserted. What are your thoughts on this? Um, why do you think sexual harassment and abuse are so rampant in sports culture? And what are sports bodies' reason, uh, reasons for um, taking this sort of harmful stance? Well, I, I'll add to your list. Uh, just about 10 days ago, the U.S. US Olympic Committee was in court in this bankruptcy court, case, sorry, bankruptcy case in Indiana. And their attorney said that the USOC was not under no legal obligation to notify Michigan State about Larry Nasser after they were informed of uh, allegations, pretty su su substantial allegations against Larry Nasser in the summer of 2015. So basically because USA Gymnastics, the USOC and the FBI didn't feel the need to contact uh, Michigan State, somewhere between 40 and 100 new victims uh, fell, fell into Nasser's web. Um, I, I think this has gone on because it's been allowed to go on. There's, this, there's been no no effort to, to address it by the NCAA, mm -hmm. by USOC, or any of these NGBs. Track has done in the last few years has done a better job at, at, at dealing with it. But you know, it's just, it's it, it goes back to a lot of stuff you guys have covered uh, in, in in previous uh, episodes that, that you know like. These, these governing bodies like the NCAA, they, they view athletes as cattle and they're just, you know, commodities. They're just, um, Martha Crowley, I remember I asked her after uh, after Rio, after Simone, after they won the team title and, and asked her about Simone, just being like a once in a generation, maybe once in a lifetime talent. And she says, oh no, there's always more more gymnasts. And if, if, if one gets hurt, we'll just plug somebody else in there. And so it was clear that she just views these kids as, you know, stuff coming down to the conveyor belt. And then if one's defective, I always, I always kind of, there's that famous Lucy episode, I love Lucy episode where that she's, she and Ethel are in, on working the conveyor belt and stuff goes haywire. And it's, like, it's always kind of reminded me of how USA Gymnastics and some of these NGBs use these kids. Like if one doesn't work, they just kind of toss them off the side and you grab the next one. Um, and part of the problem is that in swimming and gymnastics, some of these other sports, there's such a talent pool in the United States. You have this Darwinian kind of culture where if, if, if some kid has an issue, you, they're dis easily disposed of and you just go on the next one. And that's a strength, but it's also a, a weakness in terms of addressing this issue. 
this all seems to me like the absolute epitome of hypocrisy. So like, particularly when it comes to the NCAA, the NCAA has for years proclaimed that they need to do everything in their power to quote unquote, protect NCAA athletes from the dangers and the perils of capitalism. Um, Like, you know, by like ensuring that they abide by this code of amateurism so that they're not exploited and harmed by Nike and by money and all the things that corrupt their young lives. On the other, they claim here that the association has absolutely no legal obligation to protect athletic laborers against sexual abuse and harassment. Um, Like when I hear that, like I hear that the NCAA is only willing to protect athletes when it serves their own purpose, but even worse, that the NCAA is not here to protect athletic laborers from real harm and violence. And this is so backwards. And I actually would argue that this is perhaps even criminal um, in my view. Um, and, and Aaron Aldrich said this best in your recent piece, um, uh, when you need them to be most present, they are not. Yes. So my question is like, what the hell's wrong with the NCAA? It's, they're just a, a big corporate operation that doesn't really uh, care about. I don't. I don't believe it really cares about the athletes. At, at, at the mm. the bottom line is, I mean, you, you go back to the, you know, any of these cases, the O'Bannon case, the case, you know, the the, the, the cases that have come in California with the, with the likeness issues. Um, a few years ago, the NCA, there was a lot of college, a lot of colleges were getting pushback about um, uh, campus sexual abuse, not necessarily even with lobbyed athletes, but just campus, campus, campus sex crimes in general. And so they formed a blue ribbon committee and they made a big deal about it. And they issued all these press release and they gave all this advice on how to deal with sex abuse on campus, but they had never addressed it with when another athlete's abusing an when it, let's say when one athlete's abusing another athlete or when a coach or a trainer is abusing an athlete. And they, they also don't, we wrote about this about a year and a half ago, they also don't honor um, U.S. Center for Safe Sport bands. So last year, uh, yeah. the, the NCAA Volleyball Championship, was the final was between Long Beach State and University of Hawaii, the men's final. University of Hawaii had a guy who was at the time suspended by USA Volleyball because he was under investigation for sexual misconduct involving a teenager. The top assistant guy for, for Long Beach State was a guy by the name of Scott Tuszynski, who was an Olympic gold medalist. He had been suspended and continued to coach at Long Beach State while he was, while he was suspended by USA Volleyball and the U.S. Center for State Sport for sexual misconduct involving a teenage girl in Canada. He, he right before the tournament, uh, started we wrote a story he he eventually resigned but you had so they the ncaa will not even honor um even when when it's clear that somebody is, is involved in sexual misconduct they won't they won't take a stand um this this case with the, the texas women is is unbelievable um so they, they they talk a good game they care about athlete safety they care about athletes academics um all this and until it, it costs them some money or, or, you know, potentially could damage their brand. They, they um, you know, hypocrisy is their middle name. That I think it might even be the title of this show. Hypocrisy is their middle name. Um, because <laughs> I have like, like the, I constantly go back. And if you've heard any of the other episodes on the podcast, we have constantly talked about how the NCAA is not actually 
ever they never care about their athletic laborers insofar as they're human beings they only care about any revenue being brought forward and this seems like this may actually be one of the most damning um instances of this we love to talk about like college football players and revenue generating sports in general like getting paid and that's the big ticket item but like to me as a critical scholar of sport this response um and seeing the ncaa's response in this case has me like completely on the side of abolish the ncaa that they, they are doing everything so wrong and actually harming um athletes in in so many real and tangible ways that goes well beyond just like insufficient remuneration for their athletic labor um as someone who i i you you've shared that you um have a have a son that's an athlete and i imagine you're invested in sport at least a little bit and maybe invested in the ncaa or um, may once been a fan or currently a fan of certain sports how do you respond to that like oh let's abolish the ncaa i i i I don't have a problem with it i i you know it's interesting the other day dr harry edwards who is a very wise man uh he he posed a really uh really great question he said yeah everybody's consulting about opening uh college sports in the fall especially college football says every you know they're consulting doctors and they're consulting local officials and, and university officials and coaches and athletic directors, but nobody's bothered to, to, to consult the, the people who are going to pay the price, the players. And I saw today that Clemson has 23 cases of COVID today. Um, Clemson yeah. football mm-hmm. team. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of this, I, I hope this is the reason uh, it, it, it may not be, but a lot of this stuff with the NCAA, with the USOC, I feel like if Congress wasn't so sidetracked by all the, all the, Trump scandals that that they can really hone in on the NCA and the USOC. I think a lot of the Nasser stuff, a lot of the swimming stuff is, is kind of been pushed to the side because the Congress has been busy dealing with this. And so for a while in 2018, there was a lot of momentum on Capitol Hill to deal with these issues. And then it, mm-hmm. you know, it got sidetracked by all the other stuff, you know, the scandal of the day from Trump. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to return to, you've mentioned the Carolis a few times, and um, I I don't know if you know this, but I study Eastern Europe and I study Hungarian right. sports specifically. And so, and the, the Carolis, the Karolis in Hungarian, they are like ethnically Hungarian who right. live in Transylvania, which is, you know, in Romania. So I've always kind of been like fascinated by their story. And it just seemed, I mean, I didn't know about you know, them eliminating, what was it, the athlete wellness thing, right. but they seemed to get away like somehow get away from any kind of punishment out of the Nasser thing. But I read probably from one of your pieces about how like that ranch in Texas has like no cell phone service. Athletes are not supposed to contact their parents, I think. Right. And so I, I just don't understand how they've escaped um, any kind of punishment or anything. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. That's a, a great, great question. And I, it's a question that uh, IBAS and, and, and survivors have repeatedly asked, um, you know, they're mandatory reporters in in, Cal, in, uh, in Texas. And Marta knew in, in July of 15 that Larry Nasser was, you know, sexually abusing uh, uh, national team members. The, the, the Crowley system 
is is the foundation of what of this, this cultural abuse that enabled Larry Nasser, and it was it was like the perfect storm. These kids are isolated down there. They're beat up physically, mentally. They they're cut off from the real world even more so than they are on a daily basis. I mean, being a leech and this it's not a real life. And when you're down at ranch, you're 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 literally cut off from everything, and so you're not you're not you're not being properly treated with your injuries. You're not you're not having access to your friends, your family, you're not eating, you're not getting enough calories. And so Larry uh, was their buddy. He was the one who would sneak him a cell phone, would sneak him a computer, sneak him food. He was the, the guy you would go to and, and uh, cry on his shoulder. And, and he took advantage of that. And they, for a while, there was also a, there was an athlete rep, a consultant that the athletes were supposed to go to if they had an issue. And it was supposed to be between the athlete and this athlete rep. Well, it turned out that this athlete rep would, if you would go and complain about something to the, the rep, she would turn around and go to Marta. And so it was, so Larry was oh, really no. the one person they could trust. And, and it, 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 it's, it's the perfect storm, perfect case for this guy. I mean, he, they couldn't have made it any easier for him. Um, and I think the other thing is, that's really important about the Crowley system and, 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 and some of these, other sports as well is, especially gymnastics, is that this culture of abuse is, it, it blurs the line between the physical and mental abuse these kids suffer all the time, these women suffer, or and boys suffer all the time, and then the sexual abuse. It, it, it kind of creates this gray area. Um, I remember I interviewed Do Yamashiro in 2011 about her, her uh, the sexual uh, abuse she suffered with Don Peters. And she said, you know, I'm, my body's beat up. I'm on all kinds of anti-inflammatories and, and painkillers. And the sex with Peters just seemed like it was part of the, just something else to endure, basically. And, and I think a lot of these kids, that's, that's kind of how they viewed it and how, and how the, the predators were able to, to pull it off is that, 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 that it's just it's these incremental steps of abuse and it, uh, lead to lead to the sexual abuse, and I, I also think the, the thing I hope that comes out of this thing is that, and we're starting to see it a little bit with the Haney case and the Amy Nyman case, is that abuse is abuse. Uh, if you, just because you weren't sexually abused, if you were physically abused, emotionally abused, verbally abused, you're still abused, and you're still gonna pay a, a could conceivably pay a price for the rest of your life, and and because you were physically abused or verbally abused, it makes you more more I believe more uh, increases the likelihood that you'll suffer sexual abuse later on. Um, so I, I think the one thing I really hope one not one of, one of the many things I hope that comes out of this is that we everybody starts taking the physical and the verbal abuse and emotional abuse seriously too. That it that it's not just like we mm -hmm. stop categorizing abuse. That well because you were sexually abused, this is more important than this. That I think we need to treat it all and, and realize that. There are long terms, long term issues, and and these women and men will pay a price for this abuse, whether it's verbal or physical or sexual, for decades if we don't get a handle on it. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. I'm just like thinking. I'm like writing notes down as you're talking, and that the the fact that you said that the Carolis were like you know created this foundation, and that Nasser was like the one person they could trust, just totally blows my mind. Um, I guess I kind of saw him, you know, based off of sort of the media and everything as like the the worst of the worst. But obviously, from an athlete perspective, as you painted for us, it's just you know they saw it in a different way, which just kind of 
it's scary and it's awful. It just kind of blows my mind. Well, he, 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 um, he definitely was a master manipulator, but he, he had this, yeah. this, this playing field that, that made it easy for him to, to prey on these, 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 these women. Uh, I mean, they, they had nowhere else to turn. I mean, that was, that's basically what this culture with the Crowley's created is they had no, they had nowhere to turn. And mm-hmm. so Larry was some, the guy they thought they could trust. And, and he, he took advantage of that. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's brutal. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to kind of follow up on what you said at the end and that last answer about how people are starting to sort of parse out what different kinds of abuse are and like it's all abuse, but there's like much more than just sexual abuse. And so you mentioned Amy, Amy Nyman, who I was going to ask you about. And I think it's interesting that now coaches such as her are being um, sort of reported um, and taken to task for being, you know, using like emotionally abusive language and, and physical harmful, physically harmful coaching tactics. So sort of what do you think this says about any changes that might be underway within either gymnastics, safe sport, or sort of those those sorts of things? I, I, I'm encouraged by it because I think it, 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 it's a recognition of that abuse isn't just sexual abuse and that that mm-hmm. this kind of coaching that Amy Nyman's alleged to have uh, participated in, it, it can be very destructive as well. And, you know, the Maggie Haney case is, is, a, is a classic example of that where, you know, you had a kid fall and suffer a, a concussion and a, 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 a fractured skull. And, and she's, she and her, her co-coach are laughing at, at the kid and, and just the, this, this abusive, toxic, Way of coaching um, that that it's on the that hopefully it's on the on the way out. I think I think finally starting to see uh, these NGBs. I think you're seeing the NGBs finally forced to recognize that this is this is not something that can be tolerated anymore. We've talked for for 45 minutes about the, how this is a structural, cultural, um, sort of whole systemic issue. What? has been or what are the, the the greatest barriers to protecting athletes from this harm? Um, like what can teams, what can governing sport bodies, um, what can lawmakers, policymakers do to better protect athletes and athletic laborers in your mind? Well, I think education is a big part of it. Um, I think, you know, there's people like Catherine Starr with Safer Athletes who does a really good job of going out around and talking to to swim clubs and gymnastic clubs and universities about, you know, what, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and, 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 you know, what are best practices? I think, you know, you need, you need a lot more of that and a lot more education. I think you need these NGBs to be, uh, to, to stop putting medals and money and, and, and branding and, and sponsorship relationships ahead of, of the kids. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing. And it's the easiest thing to do. I mean, it doesn't take, you don't have to have legislative, Passed legislation passed to to to, to reprioritize your your how you how you run your NGB and, and putting athletes first. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple thing, but you have to be willing to do it, and you have to be willing to uh, have a few ugly headlines here and there because it's it's because you have to you have to address the past and your history, and and find who these these coaches are and, and rid them. Of your from your sport and until you and until you do that you can't you can't really move forward but i think the, the biggest barrier honestly is the mindset of of, of these ngbs and the usoc that that mm-hmm. this is how we're going to roll from here on and uh, uh until you until you 
get there and, and, and stop, you know, protecting the Mitch Ivies and, and the Martha Crowleys and, and, and the, the, these other coaches, then you're never going to, there's always going to be an Aaron Aldrich or a, um, mm-hmm. a Lori Hernandez. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's not going to go away. And so I guess like, what do you think are like the roles of athletes and parents in this? And, and I ask because um, this is something that, you know, like 20 years ago, even when I was an athlete in the 2000s, like people weren't reporting about this, like even in my experiences, which like I said, we're not terrible by any means, but I never th- ever thought to report anything to anybody. I was certainly never aware of anything. Um, so like, yes, yeah, so get it, you know, they should be educated about this, but like, what are their roles in this process? In 2011, when we did the Don Peters and the Doug Bower story, we, I, it was probably about somewhere between 15 and 20 women that, that I dealt with in reporting this. And I can't tell you how much respect I have for those women because they came forward uh, before this was, you know, a hot topic and, and at a great, you know, personal risk and personal embarrassment. And they did it because they didn't really gain anything out of it, but they did it because they didn't want kids who they'll never know, who they never met, to go through the same stuff that they went through. They did it because they they wanted to prevent other, for the most purest of reasons, they wanted others to not have to go through what they went through. And I think that slowly started cracking cracking the the, the, the walls and made it easier for, for, for people to come forward. And obviously the, the, the hearings in Michigan, um, I think was just, I mean, it was kind of like the 1989 and 1990 with the, 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 the Iron Curtain. It just, you know, it, it came down overnight. I mean, I think the, the, those hearings um, were, were huge in, in the message they sent to parents and, and, and survivors that it, it, it's okay to come forward and, and, and tell your story and people are willing to listen. Um, uh, I, I, I'll tell you a story. I was listening to Twisted, the Audible uh, book by Mary Pilon and Carla Carrera. Mm. I was driving around Oregon, and I think it was January, and I was I was uh, had it on, on uh, hooked, up, hooked up to the, the the radio with my phone, and uh, you know I've covered this like for a long time. And the Trina Gonchar thing, when it came on at the end of the, at the end of the the Twisted, it, it just I had to pull over the side of the road. I mean. Um, Trina, the, the Goncher testimony and, and the Maddie Larson testimony, I mean, that, that's as powerful as it gets. Those two women, I mean, all those women were just unbelievable and the courage was, yeah. was amazing. But those two, I mean, they'll haunt me forever. And um, um, it's, they were just so powerful. And uh, I think, I don't think you can, you can, I don't think we'll ever be able to describe how powerful and how influential that those those women more than 100 of them getting up there in testimony the test sorry testifying in, in, in terms of opening up um this whole thing and, and forcing forcing people on capitol hill to take notice people in colorado springs to take notice but also telling parents and survivors that it's okay you know um if you, if you it's okay to come forward and, and it's okay to to tell your story and and not, there's people listening, not everybody, but there are people that, that will listen. And I think that, to me, that's the biggest breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, just as like a, a side note, I mean, I remember I was like finishing up my dissertation when um, those hearings were on. And I just remember like spending days just 
like watching like videos about it and thinking about it. And just, I just personally felt so empowered like watching them and, you know, they're younger than me and they right. went through, you know, much, much worse things than me, but I just, I couldn't believe that they were given that space and that they also felt comfortable doing that because, you know, I've only spoken a very, very little bit. And, and that was really like scary for me. And I really tossed and turned about sort of what, what to say, what not to say. Um, so that was just so, so empowering. So, I mean, I, I too would hope that a lot of people took note and that like, you know, this is you know, what happens to you is not your fault sort of thing. Um, well, I, I think a lot of the credit in that thing goes to, to, to um, the, the, the prosecuting attorney who handled that. I think she did a magnificent job with, with, with those women and, and, and bringing those women along and getting them to a point where they, they did feel comfortable. And, and, you know, there's, there's attorneys, survivors, attorneys, for those women who, who did a great job, a lot of times you'll see survivors, attorneys who throw their clients out on TV real quick. And, and because they want to uh, get a lot of attention. I mean, there's a, a, a well-known female attorney in uh, Los Angeles who has a lot of celebrity sexual abuse cases. Who's I think well-known and does, a, does a lot of this where they kind of, throw their clients out there for a photo op and it makes a lot of headlines, but it's not really maybe the best thing for the, their client where I think these attorneys did a really good job of, of getting uh, the survivors to a point where they were comfortable talking about this and, 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 and did it in a healthy way. And the, and the ones that weren't ready didn't speak about it. So um, I, I think, uh, but you know, ultimately it was the, the, the unbelievable courage of these women that, you know, got up there and, and, and made a difference. And, the, and that, and that, those three, four days in Michigan, I think will have an impact for, for decades. Um, so I have a little bit of sort of like a, a selfish question here. So I've been thinking, I mean, like I've said, my research is on like European sport, but kind of because of my own experiences and like, and reading your articles and kind of thinking about it, I've, I've been tossing around the idea of like a future research project about um, historical um, perspective on like sexual harassment and swimming again, because that's what I know, but I just have no idea about like records and, and research. So if you're able to say anything about sort of how you do that research, um, I would love to sort of hear, hear about it. A lot of what we, in the swimming stories, a lot of what we had, we got through uh, Freedom of Information. There, there's paper trails on Capitol Hill. Uh, I got a letter on my desk from, um, uh, at one point, uh, George Miller, who was a, a U.S. congressman from the Bay Area, had, had in the early 2010s, so like maybe 2011, 2014, somewhere around there, it was really concerned about this level of sexual abuse and swimming and notified the, the FBI. And there's a letter, there's, it was referred to James Comey at the time, and it doesn't look like he really took it real seriously. And then a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that comes up in lawsuits, um, just a lot of mining for documents in, in, in these different cases. And, and I think as we go forward, I, I think you're going to see with these, with these suits against USA Swimming, you're going to see a lot more uh, stuff come out in depositions and, and, and documents. And, and uh, I mean, that was, that was a big source of ours. We, you know, obviously we had some people leak us documents that weren't involved in cases, but, but a, lot of, a lot of what's out there is, is, is in court files. Fantastic. That's super helpful. Thanks for letting me pick your brain for a your bit. Description to paste um, and just just type in USA Swimming and, and you'll you'll be plenty busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> 
Um, so you, you touched on this a little bit um, about sort of like what parents can do. And I want to like return to this a little bit because um, in my episode when Nathan and, and Derek um, interviewed me, my kind of suggestion, so I coached club swimming for about seven years in grad school, just with like little kids, um, basically below the age of puberty. And my sort of suggestion was like, was to tell parents to like, don't not trust their coaches, um, which I know may be counterintuitive, you know, athletes should trust their coaches and trust their training, but at the same time, they're not like protecting themselves if, if they do that. Um, so I would sort of love to hear um, your advice for like what parents should be thinking about, um, should be talking to their kids about and that sort of thing. And, and you know, you have experience as, as a sports parent. Right. So this won't surprise you. Every coach who my kids, my kids have ever had have been background checked. Um, oh, good. That's great. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think transparency is great. Uh, I, on the side, coach a middle school cross-country team. Um, okay. And I, th I think one of the big things you have to do, especially if it's a co-ed team, I think, and I think this is, it goes to part of the problem with, with this sexual abuse in Olympic sports is that there's not been enough women role models. There's not been enough women in power. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously Marta Crowley was the, the most, maybe the most powerful woman in American gymnastics, but she was the wrong, wrong woman. I, but I think that um, it's good for boys and girls to see women in, 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 uh, coaches and administrators and, and, and powerful positions. It, it's just, just healthy. Um, but, but I think you, you have to insist, if you're a parent, you have to insist on transparency. Uh, when a coach says you can't watch practice, that's probably not a great thing. Now, if you want to, yeah. if that, I mean, that coach can have a place, you know, a grandstand designated for the parents or a window at the skating rink from the snack shack where you can watch practice. It doesn't mean you have to be eyesight or on the mat at, at, a, at a gymnastic club, but you need to be, it, they're your children and you need to see what's going on. And, and you can be, you can be, you can, you can witness practice without being a distraction or, or being a problem. Uh, and, and these coaches have to be willing to talk to, uh, to parents. Uh, we talk to parents all the time. Um, if a parent has a question, you know, there's, they're, you know, not everybody's Marta Carilli, so if, if and, and don't be afraid to ask a dumb question. Um, if your if you, your coach, if your kid's coach is on social media with your kid, that's a a red flag. You shouldn't be getting. Absolutely. You shouldn't be. Kids shouldn't be texting. Uh, you know, like a kid will text me about you know, Mr. Reed. Uh, should I do this workout on Sunday or should I do this workout on Sunday? And I, and I I text back to their parents and say this is what the workout you know this kid should do. You, you, there should be no out of out of off-site communication between the coach and the kid. Every parent has email. Every parent has a you know a way to be texting. So you don't need to be to be uh, uh, texting or emailing kids or calling kids. Um, you know your relationship with that kid sh should stop when when practice is over and, and everybody goes home. Um, you know if the parent wants to call you for advice or if kid wants to get on the phone with a parent and ask for advice or you know, and, and guidance that's that's fine but it's it when you start doing one-on-one -on -one stuff with kids that's when you start you know that's where you can have problems I mean I think your advice about like watching practices and sort of have having an eye on what's going on and also like the no texting rule are fantastic those are ones I did as well I mean my kids were young so the texting wasn't really an issue but I always encouraged 
parents to be on the pool deck. I mean, there were a few that like they were an unhealthy presence for their mm-hmm. athletes on the pool deck. And so then I would usually like consult with my coach sort of about like how to move forward. But I, I definitely, uh, transparency is huge. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think that's really important. Um, and one other thing that you point, you said that I wanted to highlight was you talked about like sort of the lack of female role models and female coaches. And this is something that I, I've only sort of read about in passing, but would love, I need to sort of do more research on is, you know, like after, after Title IX was passed, um, a lot of coaching positions, like it used to be that a lot of sports departments had like a women's sports department and a men's, right. and then a lot of them were, a lot of them were combined right. after Title IX. And then it was like, well, we don't need separate female coaches when we have a male coach. So there's like a, it was a huge drop off in terms of the numbers of female coaches. Well, at the same time, you're gradually and then quite quickly having enormous numbers of like women, girls, like such as myself and all my teammates you know, joining sports teams and stuff and still like a real like absence of sort of female role models and coaches so that and the timing is really interesting there when you have Title IX in 72 and then a lot of this stuff sort of happening in the 70s and obviously 80s, 90s and 2000s. I remember going in 19, January 1989, going to a Title IX conference in Dallas. I'm sorry, in Austin. And I was working in Dallas and it was a conference in. Um, in, in Austin and Donna Lopiano was there and she went over the Title IX numbers. And so this was 17 years after Title IX had passed and, and the numbers were just abysmal and just disgusting. And, we, we, you know, early on when I first started doing investigative reporting, a lot of the stuff I did was Title IX related stuff, uh, especially Title IX and African-American women. How just There were no women in, in African-American women in positions of power and very few coaches and uh, just it was a huge issue. Um, I think you're starting to see, like Carla Green's a, the athletic director of Virginia, and she was just approached by UCLA to, to be their AD, and she turned him down. I think it's it's getting better, but it's it's way too slow, and it's it's still not nearly enough. And I and I, I again I go back to my my point. I think if if a lot of this um, stuff that's the abuse and, and other problems in college athletics and amateur athletics, I think if we had more women and positions of power, um, I think a lot of this could have been avoided. I have a, I had a very strong mother and I had three sisters, so I, I know the the, <laughs> the, the power of, of women. Um, um, but I, I think um, it's kind of sad that, that, that it took so long and, and we're still fighting Title IX battles. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's disgusting. It highlights all the issues that we've been talking about um, through this, throughout this podcast. I, I want to just ask you, um, like, is is there anything more um, to add to this discussion? Like, is there is there something like v- very important that you being the expert on this that we've missed in what we've talked about thus far? Well, there's there's a case. So there's a in a there's a appeal related to the Taekwondo case with the Lopez brothers out here in California. And so the Supreme Court is going to decide if the USOC is responsible um, for athlete safety. And if it is, then that's going to be open a lot of doors legally. And I, and I think it's going to, it's, I think the, the U.S. bankruptcy case is going to pale in comparison. And, and again, in this, um, 
this this bankruptcy case with with where the OCC said they weren't responsible to talk to Michigan to, to alert Michigan State and then the NCA case. I mean, I think that NCA case with with the, the Texas women and the, and the in the Rimbo case. I think if all those decisions go against the NCA, go against the OCC, then I think that's a whole new playing field. Um, and I think I think you're going to see uh, a lot of legal action and some and some major changes. And you're going to I think it's really going to force these these uh, uh, these sports governing bodies. There'll be a lot of come to Jesus moments. I think. Mm. I think well, fingers I think, crossed. I think, I think that those are those are huge, huge, potentially huge cases. All right, well, we'll certainly keep an eye out for those. I'm not super familiar with them, so I'll have to read up on it after this. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, we're talking about sort of the, the harassment and the cover-ups, you know, and, and the, the not even just the cover-ups, right? The sort of cultivation of this culture and sort of how it exists at various levels, you know, the club level, NCAA, USOC. But where is the International Olympic Committee in all of this? I mean, do they just kind of wash their hands of it and are like, we have no part because this is a national domestic issue? I'm, I guess it's just like they are like a governing body as well. I feel like they should have, I don't know, they should have to answer for the, some of this. Yeah, and it's like a lot of things. They're 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 um, they're conspicuous in their absence on on this case. Um, I mean, this this topic. Uh, it, it's. You know they, the USOC, the IOC. You know the, the only time you know you really hear from them is when they tell you where to send a check. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, you know Bach, fancies himself as a world leader. You know they want to talk about climate change and they want to talk about this and that and and you know then they they plop down Olympic games in in some of the worst slums in South America and and um, uh, I mean, my lasting image of of the covering the Rio Games was the night of opening ceremony, and we're in a, a media's in a bus going to the uh, American Isle for the opening ceremony, and uh, and you and you're just going through these these favelas that have no electricity, you know, tin roofs, just some incredibly incredible poverty, and then you and, and this big parade of, of uh, Mercedes SUVs with flashing lights and all these, the gravy train of the IOC goes flying by. And, and, you know, I don't think for a minute they, they contemplated, you know, the, this, this poverty they were going through. And, 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 and so they, they don't care. They, they, they're just a cash machine. And, and, and so as long as they get paid, they don't care. But this is, this is a, you know, this isn't just a U.S. problem, the, the sexual abuse of, of athletes. It's, it's, you know, it, it's 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 a worldwide issue, and 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 they haven't addressed it really in any significant way at all. And it's, but that's how they that's how they roll. And it's, speaking of an organization with with not a lot of female power. Yeah, calls on all organizations from the bottom all the way to the top to um, address um, what I, I think is best characterized as a, a pandemic of sexual violence happening in in. Um, the ranks of elite sport. And I don't think it's just a um, sort of more privileged sport, uh, like a, a swimming and, and gymnastics. Um, I think this is happening uh, in in many, many um, different um, sporting arenas, um, whether or not people have the privilege and the ability to, to speak up against these things. I, I think we need to see more 
um, support for victims in cases like this so that we can see the, the true numbers behind um, a pandemic of this type. Um, but Scott Reed, thank you so much for spending um, the, the evening with us uh, and, and thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Th I just want to reiterate, thank you so much. This was enlightening in many ways. I probably won't sleep well tonight, but yeah, it's super important and we're so glad to have your, your expertise on it. Thank you. I enjoyed it and I appreciate it. I'm glad you guys are talking about this important issue. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.